So have you made any New Year's resolutions yet? Got your list together? Maybe you're going to exercise more. Huh? Maybe you're going to sleep a little more. Maybe there's a few of you that need to sleep a little bit less. I'm just saying. Nobody in my home in particular am I pointing to. Maybe this morning you made a resolution to manage your time better or manage your money better. Maybe you're going to drink more water and you're going to cut yourself down to less than 14 Diet Cokes a day. You know, you're just going to you know, go for a goal there. Maybe you're going to eat more vegetables. Maybe you're going to eat less bacon. That's not a resolution I have on my list, but, you know, it might be something that you feel like you need to do. We have resolutions this time of year, things that we say, oh, I'm going to start doing this, I'm going to stop doing that. But, but what helps us keep our resolutions? What helps us keep those habits and, and those things and help us to stick to it? Well, one of the buzzwords this year when it comes to uh, the concept of keeping a resolution is self-compassion. Self-compassion. Well, what is self-compassion? Kristen Neff is an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. And she has three markers that come with self-compassion. She says that self-compassion, the first marker is self-kindness. In other words, when you fail, you just cut yourself some slack. All right? You just aren't so hard on yourself. You, you have some self-kindness. The second aspect is just common humanity. You know, no one is perfect, and that includes you. So when you fail, you just kind of remember that none of us are perfect. And then the third part of self-compassion is mindfulness. It means that when you fail, you don't ignore the failure, but you don't obsess about the failure either. You just keep a good mind about what's going on. It seems that the, the idea behind self-compassion is it's kind of your own personal life coach, helping you get through and encourage you and, and helping you stick with those resolutions. But what if it's more than just a resolution? What if you're in the middle of a serious difficulty? What if things are, are hard? What if it's a, a tragedy or a trial, a, a tribulation? It's a, it's a very, very bad struggle. And a little dose of self-compassion won't do it. It doesn't work. It's, it's not enough. Is there some kind of compassion for those moments in life? For the very worst moments in life, is, is there some compassion that can help, that can rescue you, that can protect you and shelter you, that can care for you? that can keep you safe? Yeah, there is a compassion just like that. And it's not self-compassion. In fact, this type of compassion has absolutely nothing really to do with you. It's not dependent on you. So what kind of passion is that? Well, let's find out. Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 33. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is talking to a crowd of people one day, and, and in this crowd it's kind of a, a hodgepodge of folks. There are some people in the crowd that day that are very religious, but they hate Jesus. There's some people in the crowd that day that, that they're very curious. They're there. They want to check Jesus out, see what he's all about. There's some people in the crowd that day, they were completely indifferent, you know. I mean, they heard there was going to be a free buffet when the sermon was over. So, man, they were just there to, to hang out and just have something to do. 
There's a lot of different people in this crowd. And in this different crowd of people, Jesus is telling them about the kingdom of God. And he's telling them that if they're ever going to enjoy the treasures of the kingdom of God, if they're ever going to be entered into the kingdom of God, then they would need to repent and turn from their sin. He's also been telling them about why he was on the earth. He was giving them a little bit of his itinerary too. See, Jesus had a journey, and it was a, a journey that was not going to be changed. He had a message from God, and that message from God was going to Jerusalem. And so what happened to the messengers of God that were sent to Jerusalem? Well, they were persecuted, and sometimes they were executed. Now just think through this a little bit. All right, so you have Jerusalem, kind of known as the city of God, and the Israelites, kind of the people of God that live in that city, and they persecuted the messengers of God that came to them with God's message. I mean, that math does not work. Why so much violence toward the messengers of God? Well, a big part of it was their message kind of all had the same theme. All the messengers came with a message that went something like this, Repent of your sin. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. And the people of God living in the city of God did not like for the messengers of God to tell them that they had sin. See, they thought they were okay. They thought that they were pretty decent people. And they knew that they were better than some other people. So they didn't take too kindly to these messengers coming and telling them, look, your good deeds, they're filthy rags if you're treasuring sin more than you're treasuring God in your heart. Good thing none of us are like that, right? <laughs> I mean, when people confront us with sin, I mean, we're always quick to say thank you, right? When people confront us with our sin, we're quick to say, you know what, I'm wrong. Let me change my attitude. Let me change my actions. Let me change my habits. That's what we're quick to do, right? Listen, just a reminder, we don't need to read the Bible just as a study guide or as a playbook or as a history book. It's a good reminder that sometimes we need to read the Bible like a mirror, when we're reading the Bible, we need to be very, very quick to say, mm, am I like that? And we need to be really slow to say, oh, I'm, I'm never, I'm never like that. We need to read the Bible as, as if God really is speaking to us, because he is. It's not just ancient stories. Jesus is telling this crowd that, that he's going to be the ultimate, ultimate messenger with the ultimate message to Jerusalem. And again, how did Jerusalem handle the messengers from God? Listen to what Jesus says next. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. You know, if you're riding into a town, you might expect to see a, you know, a welcome sign and, and maybe a catchy slogan on that sign. You know, something like, you know, smiling faces, beautiful places, you know. But if you came into a city and the sign said, killing prophets, stoning messengers, yeah. you, you might turn around and go the other way. So here is this city that was known for killing prophets and stoning messengers. And Jesus, he's, he's going to this city. But don't miss the shift in the master's voice. He uses their name twice. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. One day Jesus was having a meal with two sisters and some other folks. And during that meal, Jesus began to talk to the two sisters about the importance 
importance of serving others and the importance of worshiping God. Mary, one of the sisters, she was listening to Jesus with just great joy, great honor, great devotion. She was hanging on every word he had to say. Martha, the other sister, she was almost completely ignoring Jesus. And she was a busybody trying to make sure everybody got their desserts and everybody had enough sweet tea in their glass. She was just going after everything that needed to be done. And this is what Jesus said to Martha. Luke chapter 10. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. What do parents do sometimes when their kid's in trouble? They use their whole name, right? John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, you better get down here right now, mister. I want to see you front and center. Or maybe they, you know, use, use their name twice. Kevin, Kevin, get here. Sorry for any Kevins. Sorry, not you really. When Jesus used Martha's name twice, he wasn't getting on to her. She wasn't in trouble. He wasn't snapping at her. No, with calmness, with clarity, with compassion, Jesus was just saying, Martha, you know what you're right. There are a lot of things in life that we have to do that are important. But you know, there's only one thing that's necessary. Just, just one. And Martha, the thing you need the most is me. What you need the most is me. So what does Martha, Martha have to do with Jerusalem, Jerusalem? Compassion. Compassion. With calmness, with clarity, with compassion, Jesus says that he has a message for the city that kills God's messengers. And what is that message? Listen to what he says next in verse 34. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Wouldn't be the first time he went there either. He had been there several times a year his whole life. He knew Jerusalem. He knew people that lived there. He knew the right places to eat during the festivals. I mean, he, he knew Jerusalem. He knew the good parts and the bad parts. He knew the decent folks, and he knew the evil folks. And so he goes to this place knowing that they are known for persecuting the messengers that God sent to them. And he goes knowing that they too will be responsible for his execution. And he goes with a message. And what kind of message? It's a message of compassion. Jesus goes to them not with self-compassion, but with selfless compassion. He looks at his executioners and he says, You know what? My greatest joy, my greatest delight is that you would let me gather you. That you would let me rescue you and protect you and shelter you to care for you and to keep you safe. That was his desire. It wasn't a small desire, it was a serious desire, and that desire never changed. Jesus was always looking with compassion. Susanna Spurgeon said this, How well the wee chicks know this, when the least thing alarms them or the drops of rain come pattering down, then fly quickly to their mother's wings for shelter and safety. And I love this picture she gives. And you can see nothing of them but a collection of legs, tiptoeing in their eagerness to press very close. See, little baby chicks, they, they understand. We want to run to mom when danger comes. 
We want to get underneath her wings so that nothing is protected. Just our feet are sticking out, and we know she's got us. She's going to protect us from danger. But see, the kind of protection that Jesus gives is completely different. Spurgeon goes on. The hen effectually conceals her brood from any passing enemy, but God is an impenetrable hiding place for his people. See, to be protected by Almighty God means that absolutely nothing ever can, protect, can get to you because of the protection of his wing. Nothing can touch you. Nothing can pluck you away from the wing of God. That, that's serious protection. Now, does that mean that you will not fail your test? No. Does that mean that you may not get fired? No. Does that mean that you may not lose your house? No. Does that mean that you won't get sick or you won't get some kind of disease like cancer? No, that's not what it means. To be sheltered and protected by God means this, that absolutely none of those things can touch your soul at all. In any way, shape, or form, they cannot touch your soul because your soul is protected by God. One day Jesus said this in John 8, verse 36. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Free indeed means ultimately free. Free indeed means ultimately safe. If we were to pull the words from an old hymn, we'd say it this way. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. How? How is it that the, the flames of failure are not going to hurt a believer? How is it that the, the flames of sickness are not going to hurt a believer? How is it that the flames of death are not going to hurt a believer? Well, the reason is because the protection and the shelter that Jesus brings lasts beyond the grave. Paul said this to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, that's when this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Listen, the death of Jesus on the cross is not some random event in history. The death of Jesus on the cross is the most defining moment in history when love won and death lost and for the first time ever, true, lasting freedom began to ring. What is true, lasting freedom? Well, it's freedom, ultimately, that goes beyond the grave. But it's not just beyond the grave. It's, it's freedom that today gives us the joy and the hope and the confidence and the love and the mercy and the compassion that cannot be plucked away from us. It can't. It's the nature of who God is. That's freedom. And that's the freedom that, that Jesus was offering to people who were going to scream and shout for his crucifixion. He was offering them freedom that their parents were never going to be able to take away from them. He was offering them freedom that their friends could not take away from them. He was offering them freedom that their government could not take away from them. He was offering them freedom that even death was not going to take away from them. That's freedom. Lasting freedom. And how had they been responding 
to this offer of freedom. Look at that last part of verse 34. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. They ignored Jesus. They mocked Jesus. They pushed Jesus away. They rejected him. They hated him. They killed the messengers that came before him. And what does Jesus do? He loves them. He loves them. And with compassion, he, he pleads with them to quit rejecting him. He, he pleads with them to quit trying to keep religious resolutions and just to give up and to come to him and to be saved. But they would have nothing to do with it. Let me ask you a question. How do you handle people that ignore you? How do you handle people that, that mock you, that, that push you away, that reject you and, and hate you? I know you got somebody's name in your mind right now. Yeah. Harold, you got it that time. That's good, brother. So, so here's the question. Do you handle them the way Jesus was handling his difficult people? Is the compassion that we see in Jesus, not just in this moment, but especially in this moment, is that compassion ever seen in our lives? It's hard, it's difficult, it's true, but, but these were the enemies of Jesus. Jesus looked at his enemies and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I so long that you would just let me save you and protect you and keep you and shelter you and care for you. But they pushed him away. Let me ask it maybe in a little more practical way. As, as some of the religious freedoms of our society and culture begin to fade, what's our first response? Is it pride? Is it anger? Is, is our first response to fight for our rights? Or do we follow the master and actually show compassion to the enemies of our faith? Does that mean that our religious freedoms don't matter, that we should just give in and give up? No, not at all. But, but it is important for us to check our hearts. Are, are we more angry and more prideful about potential religious freedoms that we may lose? In fact, are we more angry about our desire to have our religious freedoms than we are passionate that even some of the people who might take away those freedoms from us through legal means or through violence? Are we less passionate that those people might be saved? That those people might be protected by Jesus because he has rescued them just like he's rescued us? Lake Duncan says this, one of the signs that you're growing in the Christian life is you start to have compassion like Jesus has compassion. The way you live begins to show that compassion. What does that mean? He goes on. You share the gospel. You're committed to the support of evangelism and campus ministry and missionary work so that as many as possible can hear the message of salvation and come to faith in Christ. And why would we do that? He writes, because your heart has been enlarged with compassion, even towards those who would naturally be your enemies. Is that on your resolution list? Show compassion to my enemies. Show compassion to my enemies in hopes that they might be rescued and saved and protected by Jesus. Might just be easier to eat less bacon, right? 
That's hard. It's tough. It's difficult. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Some of our young adults were in Atlanta this past week for the Passion Student Conference, and one of the speakers was Louis Giglio, and, and he said this in one of his messages. The gospel explodes a person's heart. I, I think there's a hundred different ways you can look at that. I'm, I'm just going to pull out two here. The gospel explodes a person. The gospel is so stunning. It's so amazing. It's so powerful that it, it explodes a person's heart with joy. With joy. Five minutes after 11 on Tuesday night, my son calls me because the gospel was exploding in his heart. See, the gospel, it explodes our hearts in joy. But the gospel also explodes those old ways of thinking. There's a story about a pastor who had one of his parishioners come and, and meet with him. and He said, Pastor, I'm really struggling with a verse of Scripture from the Bible. Pastor said, okay, what verse is it? Well, it's in Romans 9 where it says that, that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. Man, I, I just struggle with that. Pastor said, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. That, that is a difficult one. What about it do you struggle with? And the man said, I struggle with God hating Esau. How, how could he do that? And the pastor said, yeah, that's, that's a tough part. He said, you know, I've always struggled with the other part, though. How could God love a wily, deceitful scoundrel like Jacob? See, we're quick to look at our version of hard. But if we could see with the eyes of God, we might be reminded that if the only scoundrel in your life is your enemy, you don't understand what a scoundrel is. Because our resolution needs to be to look in the mirror and say, I am a scoundrel without Jesus. I have nothing without Him. How could God love a wily, deceitful scoundrel like Dow? How? God, how can you show this kind of compassion? And yet He does. He does. Self-compassion might help you through a few resolutions, but the compassion of Jesus can save your soul and give you satisfaction forever. Jesus looked on his enemies. He longed with them with compassion. And then he said this to them, verse 35, Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When I was a little boy, we used to go to my Aunt Lally's house uh, pretty often. It was a great little house out in the country in Lee County. It was a little white house, and, and it kind of sat down at the end of a lane, and there was these big, huge oak trees that were kind of circled around it. I think there was a pecan tree out there, too. She died sometime in the 80s, and, and I had not been back there for years and years and years. And, and our family was coming back from a trip, and, and I just thought, you know, let's just ride by some of the old home places in the country. And so when I pulled up at the lane at Aunt Lally's house, there was a, a chain blocking the driveway, and, and, and you couldn't see the house. I drove down the side road and, and drove up around to the back, and, and I got out of the car, and I started walking up, and, and all I saw where the house was was this mound of, of vines and fallen trees. And if you look really closely on the inside, you could see some little scraps of, 
of the house. That, that house was underneath all of those vines and underneath all of those fallen trees. It had become desolated. It had come, become completely destroyed. The folks that Jesus was talking to, especially a lot of those folks, maybe most of the folks in Jerusalem, they were defining their safety and their salvation by their connection to the church house. They were defining their ultimate salvation, their eternal safety, just by their religious genealogy, by their religious activity, by their religious membership in the local church. That's the definition that they had for their safety and their salvation. One day Jesus was talking to some folks like that and he quoted from the word of the Lord to Isaiah and he said this, This people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Here's the Messiah. The one that they were excited about. The one they talked about at their church services. We can't wait for the Messiah to come. He was right in front of them. And they rejected him. And they ultimately in Jerusalem rejected him to the cross. And what were they rejecting him for? What, what were they choosing to have instead of Jesus? Jeff Thomas writes, They had traditions and books. They had priests and Levites dressed in unusual clothes. They had the seventh day of the week restricted by hundreds of ordinances. And then he says this, and they had the temple, the house of God. But it was empty. There was nothing and nobody in it. The veil had been torn in two from top to bottom, and God had gone from the Holy of Holies. They had killed his son, and God was gone. And then he says this, he had moved from the house to the hearts and the lives of his people. He had abandoned the house and now he met where two or three gathered together in Jesus' name. And he was there in the offer of the gospel. See, the safe house was, was not a safe house at all. Jesus said it was going to be desolate. Jesus wept with compassionate tears because he wanted them to see that, that he was the safe house. That he was the safe house. He, he wept over the city that would reject him. He wept over the city that would try to make sure that he made his way to the cross. But he kept looking at them with compassion because his desires that they would repent so that he could say, oh, I want to bless you. I want to rescue you. I want to redeem you. I want to protect you. I want to shelter you. I want to care for you. I want to keep you. I want to love you. In other words, Jesus didn't really want to give them a safe house. Jesus wanted to bring them home. He wanted to bring them home. Jen Pollock Michelle is author, a wife, mother of five. She wrote a book. The book is titled Keeping Place, Reflections on the Meaning of Home. And this is what she writes. Through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our slow to anger compassionate God makes a way back home. See, home is, is Jesus. It's, it's not the home place out in the country. That's nice. It's not where you live now. It's, it's not this building. Home is Jesus. Home is with Jesus. And in case you don't know this, God made a way to his home through Jesus. And God is still slow to anger 
And his compassion is still rich. And his grace is still sufficient. And according to everything that we see in God's word, the true home that he has for you is in and through Jesus Christ. He has made a way for you to be home. And listen, God is still calling people home. He's still doing it. So I pray that our first and foremost resolution would be the home of God and to be with Him is greater than 10,000 days anywhere else. Let us go home.